There's a lot of confusion today about the church. There's confusion both from outside the church and from within. From outside the church, there's a tendency to look upon the church as an old, outdated institution that needs to be reformed, needs to be reshaped, needs to be molded by whatever the contemporary thought of the world is today. It needs to be reformed, shaped, and molded in order to catch up with the progressive nature of the thought and will of the people in our day. The church, old and outdated as it was, is oppressive. It is constrictive. Its teachings, all of its teachings, particularly its teaching on human sexuality or morality, its discussion of sin and judgment are a large part of the problem, according to contemporary thought. The church must be liberated from these things. These teachings are a hindrance to progress. And if the church as an institution wants to remain relevant to society, then it must change. It must progress along with the rest of society. It must alter its views and teaching to accommodate the doctrines of the world. From within the church is also much confusion. Those within the church would also desire for the church to shift, to change, to update itself, to be less strict, more accommodating, though perhaps not to the degree of those outside the church. Those within the church have long been influenced by the thinking of the society around us. We tend to think of membership in the local church as we think of membership to our local gym or shopping food club. We pay our dues. We go when we feel like it. And when we don't feel like it, we don't go. When we're having our needs met and things are going our way, then we're excited about going to church. If not, then we can pass. We can sit out. No need to talk about what happens in our homes Monday through Saturday. No need to be at church Monday through Saturday. They were there most Sundays. At least we come for holidays and special events. That should be enough, right? We go when we feel like we need to. Church is nothing more than a glorified social club to many. It's there for me and not the other way around. Well, there's a lot of confusion today about the church While there may be confusion about the church from a human perspective, the perspective of God has not changed for the past 2,000 years. The church exists for his glory. The church exists to glorify him, to magnify him, to make his name great, to serve his purposes in the world, to point everyone back to his goodness, his grace, his greatness, and our need for him. God is the one who established the church in the beginning. He conceived of the church and brought the church into existence by the blood of his own son, his power at work in the church to save and sanctify, to give life, to guide life, to redeem and repurpose humanity for his glory is the whole existence for the church. The letter of Paul to the Ephesians makes these things clear in no uncertain terms. In fact, in the center of the letter in chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's the goal. That's the glory. That's the grand purpose for which God created the church, for his glory. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, again, Paul exhorted the church that we should walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And he follows it with similar commands throughout the rest of the letter. Walk in unity, walk in with renewed minds, walk in truth, walk in love, walk as children of the light, walk in wisdom. 
His wisdom ought to be apparent in all of life, throughout all of our relationships, including those where submission is required. In the family between wives and husbands, parents and children, in the workplace between laborers and leaders, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that God has placed on his people because we exist for his glory and not our own. This is why we cannot get off course. We cannot get off track. There are so many who are confused about the church, what it is here for, why it exists. There's so many willing to offer suggestions for the church to accommodate to the desires of the world, but we're not here for that. We're here for the glory of God. We're here to honor him. Again, to lift his name high, to honor his word, his truth, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that he has placed on our lives. We have to understand that and we have to maintain that course. Living in a way that pleases him, the God who calls us, not the world. Because again, it's about him. It's about his glory. This is what it means to be the church. The reality is that the battle which we wage is not merely about the people around us. It's not merely about those who are confused about the nature of the church, those who would offer suggestions about how we can get with the program, so to speak, to liberate ourselves from that old, stuffy, bigoted religion. What is behind their words, their actions, their intentions is something much more significant and sinister. What is behind their words and intent for the church to persuade the church to give in, to cave, to cater to the whims of the ever-changing morality of the world around us is nothing other than the evil that exists in unseen places. To stand firm against those evil spiritual forces, we need not more persuasive words and certainly not to cave into their commands, but rather we need the power of God. We need to walk in his strength. That's Paul's point as he wraps up this section toward the end of the letter in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, Paul exhorts us to walk in the power of God as we seek to live in a manner worthy of the gospel because of the unseen spiritual forces of evil that is against us and by utilizing the armor of God who is for us. Well, let's read the text together, pray, and then we'll work through these verses. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Paul says there, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all saints. Father, we thank you for today once again, and we thank you for your word, which is truth. Your word sanctifies us. 
That was the prayer of Jesus in John 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Your word sanctifies us. It sets us apart as your people. It makes us holy. It makes us more like Jesus. And that is for your glory. And so, Father, as we come before your word, open our eyes that we might behold the wonderful truths that are therein. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, we're commanded here, we're instructed here to walk in the power of God. Again, first, because of the unseen spiritual power of evil that is against us, that's verses 10 through 12. And second, by utilizing the armor of the God who is for us. That's in verses 13 through 18. Because of the unseen spiritual power that is against us and by utilizing the armor of the God who is for us. Well, let's look at that first point that we walk in the power of God because of the unseen spiritual power of evil that is against us. It's in verses 10 through 12 again. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And he says, finally, Now, that finally is his way of wrapping up this entire section. Paul is wrapping up this half of the letter in which he's been pleading with us, again, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of our calling in Christ. We've been called into the church by God. Now we should live like it. We're not here because we put ourselves into the church. We're not here because we signed on the dotted line. We're here because we are members of the church of Jesus Christ, church with an uppercase C, because of his grace, his goodness, his care for us, his power at work in us, and therefore we should live like it. We should live in accord with that calling. And as Paul is approaching the end of his plea for us to walk in the power of God, he sums it up with this final exhortation, walk in the power of God because of the evil that's facing us and by, again, taking on his armor. Again, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This is a call for us to walk or live in the strength of God, in the power of God. It is his power, his might, his strength that we need. God is powerful. God has strength. God is almighty. The text doesn't call for us to walk in our own strength or develop our own strength. It's a call to walk in the strength that God has, to walk in his power, literally to be strengthened. It's passive. It's a command to continually be strengthened in the strength of God. We are to be strong in the Lord, to be strengthened by his strength in order to be able to stand firm. Our ability to stand firm in the strength of the Lord is clearly on Paul's mind. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand and having done all to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore. We need to be able to stand firm in the strength of God on the basis of his strength. But what does it mean to stand firm? One author said it this way. The term is used to denote that which lasts and is stable, not subject to change or decay. The one who stands is not pushed around but firmly holds his or her position. In terms of warfare, it does not connote an offensive but rather a defensive stance to hold one's ground. 
We need to be able to stand firm, to hold our ground. In context, this means that we need to make sure that we're not removed from our position, from our place, particularly our place in the Lord's purposes as the church of Jesus Christ. Again, we exist for his glory and for no other reason. Not for the world, not for contemporary society, not for their good pleasure, but we exist for the good pleasure of the God who called us. And so we must stand firm in that. In order to stand firm, we need his strength. We see both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God is willing and able to strengthen us. He does desire to strengthen us with his power, his strength. But then we see our responsibility, and our responsibility is to put on the whole armor of God. We'll get back to that in a moment. But again, he says first to be strong in the Lord. And why? Why do we need to be strong in the Lord? Look at the second part of verse 11. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We need to be strong in order to be able to stand, to stand firm, to not be moved from our position in his plans and purposes for the church. We need to be able to stand because of the schemes of the devil. The devil has schemes, and those schemes are clearly, in the context, intended to cause us to fall away and not to stand firm in the faith. The devil, the world, the word is often used as a proper name. The essence of the word means slanderer. The devil is a slanderer. He speaks lies about God, about his commands, about his character, and of course he's willing to deceive and slander the brethren. And one author said it this way, Scripture says that he sinned from the beginning. 1 John 3, 8, Jesus specifically stated that the devil has nothing to do with the truth. There is no truth in him. He is a liar and the father of lies. John 8, 44. In fact, John identifies the devil as Satan, who is the deceiver of the whole world. Revelation 12, 9. Early in Ephesians, Paul referred to Satan as the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, those who are children of wrath. The devil is the slanderer. He is a liar, a deceiver. He has multiple schemes aimed at doing just that, accomplishing those purposes, slandering, lying, deceiving. Again, one author said that the idea of schemes means that he does not always attack through obvious head-on assault, but employs cunning and wily stratagems designed to catch believers unawares. The slanderer uses lies and deceit to slander the name of God, and eventually to distract you so that you may, he may slander you who have been set apart for the glory of God. The ultimate goal is to destroy what God has created. He is, as Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, the thief that comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. You need to be able to stand against his schemes. The church of Jesus Christ needs to be able to stand against his schemes. Now, the reality is that Satan is not God, Right? He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once, but he does have help. Again, he's the prince of the power of the air. Look at verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The greatest threats that we face as the church of Jesus Christ is not from the world. It's not from the secularists or the atheists or the materialists. The greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ is something unseen. He says again, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The wrestle terminology is meant to envision warfare, a battle, a fight, a struggle. The imagery is that of a soldier in close quarter combat with another. Satan, the slanderer, is the prince of the power of the air. 
that he is a prince means that he's ruling over these other rulers, authorities, these cosmic powers who themselves command the darkness. This is the realm of his rule. This is his domain. And these forces are forces of darkness under him. Of course, that means that the unbelieving world is a part of that darkness. Second Corinthians four, it says that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving to the truth of who Jesus is. The unbelieving world may reject him and they claim that there's not enough evidence. They claim they simply cannot believe it. They make up all kinds of excuses. Oh, the Bible was written by men and it was changed many times. And all of these other things that they heard from somebody else some other time way back when. And they just adopted it as their own excuse and reason for rejecting the truth. But the reason why they reject the truth ultimately is because they're being actively blinded by Satan. They're being actively blinded by him, preventing them from seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter two, again, it says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, that his spirit is now working in the sons of disobedience. John says in first John five nineteen that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. This is his domain. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1 13. That when we came to faith in Christ, we were rescued from the domain of darkness. And therefore, those who are not in Christ are abiding in the domain of darkness. The evil and opposition that we see in the world today against the church of Jesus Christ is an extension of that darkness. But the source, again, is not ultimately human. It's spiritual. It's of Satan and his minions. These are, again, as it says in the text, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We talked about the heavenly places frequently throughout the letter of Ephesians. The heavenly heavenly places are the realm from which all spiritual blessings are poured out on the people of God. Ephesians 1 3. The heavenlies is where Christ is seated after his resurrection and where believers now reside with him spiritually. Ephesians 1 20 and 21 and also chapter 2 verse 6. And perhaps more crucial for us understanding what's happening in this passage in chapter three, verse 10, Paul says that the heavenly places is where the manifold wisdom of God is being displayed as he has created the church, as he has established the church. In other words, when it says that God is showing off his manifold wisdom, he's doing that before both the forces of good, the good angelic forces in the heavenly places, and also the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realm. This is reminiscent of the scene in heaven from the book of Job, where angels are seen to be walking back and forth throughout the earth. And in particular, the accuser, the slanderer, Satan, comes before God and questions God on the person of Job. The Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him in all the earth. And Satan says, does God, does Job fear God for no reason? Basically, you've blessed him so much. Of course, he's going to fear you. And thus begin the trials of Job. The account of Job and his trials all take place within the context of this cosmic challenge issued by the accuser, the slanderer. So, again, we have to acknowledge that there's a greater struggle going on in unseen places in the cosmos here identified as the heavenly realm. And that great struggle has to do with Satan and his minions, their accusations leveled against us, their condemnations, their schemes to discredit the work of God among his people. I've said something similar before, but I think that the church has for so long attempted to ward off a hypersensitivity to spiritual things that we've forgotten the reality of the spiritual world altogether. 
Now, some believers do make a big deal about spiritual matters a lot more than they need to, right? We've all seen that. They get a flat tire and they rebuke Satan. They get a bad grade or someone cuts them off in traffic, steals their wallet. Again, they're rebuking Satan and telling Satan to get behind them. On the one hand, we need to remember that we're not Jesus and we're not Job. We're not so important that Satan would go out of his way to ruin our single day or even to try to ruin our life. We often end up doing that ourselves because of our sin. And certainly in a fallen world, sometimes they're just mean people. And there are terrible things that happen in a fallen world. It doesn't mean that Satan is, has some grand scheme or some grand plot to target just you. Or like you were pulled over for speeding when the other guy wasn't pulled over for speeding because Satan is after you. He's got bigger things on his mind. And the reality that Paul wants for us to understand is that Satan would love nothing but to discredit and destroy the church. Because that's where God is at work, because God's glory is on display there. And he wants to discredit that. And he'll attack the church in whatever ways he can. Well, what might some of those schemes be? I think certainly temptation to sin. We understand that we are tempted often by Satan and his rulers. And we're tempted in many different ways to think that perhaps God is holding out on us. He doesn't want us to have something we should have. This is the temptation that was levied against Eve. Maybe the thought that how we feel right now in this moment, what we want right now in this moment, what we think right now in this moment is the most important thing as opposed to thinking long term and thinking about the big picture. We're to embrace how we feel right now. Or maybe just a simple discouragement that we can't say no to sin. We're powerless against it, so we might as well just give in. And we're told in Scripture In James chapter one, verse 13, that God cannot be tempted with evil and he doesn't tempt you with evil. He only gives good and perfect gifts. If we're tempted, it's because of a desire in our own heart that only leads to sin. We have to remember that. And instead, we have to remember to think on the good things that God has already provided for us. To trust in his goodness and his faithfulness has already been on display. We talked about this briefly this morning when we gathered together for prayer, that thanksgiving is something that's frequently commanded in scripture. And one of the most important reasons why we should give thanks is because it forces us to remember how faithful God has been to us, especially in times when we're tempted with something that we don't have. What has God already given you? What has God already provided for you? Think about that. Focus on that. He gives good things to us. The word says in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. There is a way to escape. There is a way to endure it. Sometimes that means just telling somebody else, another faithful, mature brother or sister in Christ, what you're struggling with so they can help you to cut it off. They can keep you accountable for whatever it is. That requires a great deal of humility. What other schemes does Satan have? Sometimes it's discouragement concerning sin we've already committed. It's a weight of guilt. We've already sinned. The temptation to think that perhaps the blood of Christ is not sufficient. Maybe the temptation to think that God's just going to disregard us after we've sinned. 
that he's so discouraged by us that he's just going to cast us aside. Well, if we're struggling with sin, we certainly need to deal with it, right? But we also need to remember that as it says in 1 John 2, 1, if we've confessed our sin, what? God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, period. The blood of Christ means the, our salvation in Christ means that we have been cleansed from sin. We already talked about Romans chapter 8, but Romans chapter 8, verse 39 says very simply, Nothing can separate us from his love. Doesn't matter what sin you've struggled with in the past or what you've done in the past, nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ, period. And that's because of who he is, not because of who you are. And of course, there's discouragement in the midst of trials, right? God doesn't love you. No one understands you. No one cares. This is greater than you can bear. Again, we're reminded that nothing can separate us from his love, Romans 8. Famine, nakedness, peril, sword, persecution, whatever it might be, nothing can separate us. No created thing can separate us from his love. We have to remember that truth. But I'm also reminded of 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter says there, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may at the proper time exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. First of all, we need to be praying, right? Whenever we're struggling, 1 Peter is, is written in the context of suffering, So he says we need to pray when we're anxious, but he also says be sober-minded, be watchful. Keep this in mind. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So he prowls around as if he is a roaring lion wanting to devour someone. Now, if you hear a roaring lion who looks hungry, what's that going to do to you? (laughs) You're going to be afraid, right? You're going to be terrified. Satan is trying to intimidate. He's trying to discourage you. He's trying to make you think that, again, you are the only one. You are an imminent moral danger, a mortal danger. So what does Peter say? Rebuke Satan. Cast him out. No. He says resist him. Resist him how? Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not alone. That Satan is walking around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, trying to intimidate you, trying to scare you to thinking that you're the only one. Nobody else knows. And you know what? You may be the only one and nobody else may know because you haven't told anyone that you're struggling with something. And so that's on you. But the reality is that you're not the only one, that someone else in the world, someone else probably in this church today is struggling with the very same thing that you are or they have in the past and they made it through because God is faithful and you need to hear that, but you won't hear that unless you share it. Unless you trust God with that. I think generally Satan will do anything that leads to disunity in the body of Christ. I mean, we've seen churches split over very silly things. I mean, we, we talk about carpet color, right? Like, you know, when you're, doing some changes in the church or if a potluck's going to be on a Sunday or a Wednesday, or, you know, if we have this massive overage from our budget at the end of the year, how do we spend it? I mean, we don't, we don't have that problem right now, but some people may have that problem, right? Um, but there's all kinds of little petty things that churches get, tend to get into squabbles about. And Satan would love to just kind of stick a knife in there and twist it a little bit to, to discourage, to disunify the church. 
or anything that leads the body of Christ away from dependence on him. Again, influence and pressure from the society around us to tone it down about Jesus. Be more accommodating to the moral compass of the culture. Adapt so that you can be on the right side of history. Make your services more about show. Focus on worship. You want to try to get more people in, you need to really ramp up the worship service. Have more contemporary music. Make it nice and pretty. Get some lights, you know, the red and green lights that uh, give people headaches. Get those lights in there. You know, just, just blast it. Turn the music up loud. Have shorter sermons. Talk less about sin, less about judgment, more about what makes people feel good about themselves. Anything that will draw us away from dependence on Jesus and his word. There are unseen spiritual forces of evil against us. Satan and his minions desire to steal, kill, and ultimately destroy what God has established in the church. Therefore, we need to walk in the power of God. We need to be strengthened by God and his power in order to be able to stand against all of those schemes that Satan and his people are levying against us. The question is how? Again, how do we walk in the power of God? That leads us to our second point. Again, we need to walk in the power of God because of the unseen spiritual forces of evil against us. Second, we need to walk in the power of God by utilizing the armor of God who is for us. 13 verses 13 through 18. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, the therefore, meaning in light of what he has just said, that there is an unseen reality of evil spiritual forces under the guidance of Satan, who's actively working to discredit and destroy the church. Because this is true, we need to be able to take up, stand up, stand against his schemes. And in order to stand against his schemes, we need the whole armor of God. He already said in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. He's repeating here for emphasis. We need the strength of God. Therefore, we need to take up. We need to put on his armor. The armor itself is clearly not a physical armor, right? As we look at the description of those things that follow, but we need to take up and put on something. This is not a physical act, but there are some things that we need to do in order to take up this armor. Well, before we look at the armor itself, where does this armor imagery come from? We read from Isaiah chapter 59 a little bit earlier. In the context, Isaiah was lamenting the lack of faithfulness to the Lord, the lack of justice, righteousness, and truth among the people. I think we can relate to that, right? He says in verse 12 of Isaiah 59, for our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from heart from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. When the Lord looked out upon the people, that is what he saw. 
Therefore, the Lord himself went forth in judgment and he girded himself with armor before going forth in judgment. Verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render payment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the east, from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream with the wind of the Lord, which the wind of the Lord drives. And he goes on from there. In a place where there was no righteousness, he girded himself with righteousness. In a place where there was no salvation, he girded himself with salvation. In a place where there was no justice, he girded himself with vengeance to repay those who disobeyed and dishonored his name. The Lord himself went forth to judge and bless, to bring vengeance and to redeem. He first clothed himself with the things needed in order to accomplish those purposes. Again, likewise, we live in a world where these things are absent and much more where Satan is actively working to destroy what ought to be, in Paul's words from Ephesians, the workmanship of God, which brings glory to him for all generations. Therefore, again, verse 13, we are to take up the whole armor of God that we may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So again, what is the armor? What do we take upon ourselves to stand firm? Stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. The belt is a small but significant part of one's garment, particularly for the soldier who needs mobility as much as he needs anything else. If one's clothing prohibits movement, that can make the difference between life and death in a battle. So having an effective battle to belt to gird up one's clothing is essential. Well, what holds everything together for us? In the context, it ought to be the truth. In a world where truth is inconsequential, where truth is considered subjective and ever-changing, for the church to be able to withstand the schemes of the devil, we must continually take up the truth, the truth of God. Truth must gird our waist as a belt. Truth is what holds everything about our faith together. The standard of truth is the word of God. It's not society. It's not contemporary thought or wishes. The standard for truth for the church is what the Lord has said. Here's some things that are objectively true as measured by the word of God. The fact that one God is, he exists. He is the creator. He has commanded. He will judge based on these commands, not based on some arbitrary things that we don't know about, but based on what he's commanded. He is just, he will not overlook sin. He has provided one means of salvation, one means of forgiveness. Remember, again, our sin creates a separation between us and God. Isaiah 59, we read earlier, that separation doesn't go away on its own, but God has made a way. And that way is through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Furthermore, God has provided his word as the final authority for the church, not the pope, not the pastor, not any other spiritual leader but the word of God, that is the final authority for the church. One of the most effective strategies that Satan has at his disposal is drawing the church away from fidelity to Christ by convincing them that the word of God is no longer important. We see that happening day after day in our society. He says, stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate is just what it sounds like. It's a plate of armor, a chain mail worn over the chest of a soldier in order to protect his body from attack, to protect the heart and vital organs. In this case, the breastplate is righteousness. Biblically, we have no righteousness of our own, 
but the salvation of God brings righteousness. In fact, Paul says that the righteousness of God only comes by faith in Jesus Christ in Philippians chapter 3. Those who have faith in Christ, the believer, the church, they are given the righteousness of God. And as they walk in his righteousness, as they live in accord with his righteousness, as they walk in the good works that we've been called to, their heart is protected from attacks of discouragement. We talked about that earlier. Satan's always on the lookout for those who are weak and weighed down by various sin to exploit them and to, to lay on the guilt that inevitably comes as a result of, of sin. And thus it takes them out of the battle. It takes them out of the fight. Those who are weighed down by sin and the guilt of sin tend to drift away from the church, right? You see them less and less. You hear from them less and less. You wonder where in the world this person is. You look around one day, they're there, and the next day they're gone. And these are the schemes that he uses to take us out of the fight. Verse 15, stand firm, therefore, again, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. As you can imagine, the footwear of the military would have been drastically upgraded from what you would imagine as a typical sandal in antiquity. One author described the Romans footwear in this way. They wore heavy sandals with soles made of several layers of leather, averaging two centimeters thick, studded with hollow headed hobnails. They were tied together by leather thongs halfway up the shin and were stuffed with wool or fur in the cold weather. The purpose of those shoes would have been to give them sure footing in whatever kind of ground they found themselves fighting on. Remember, the purpose of all of this armor is to help us to stand against the schemes of the devil, to stand firm. So having shoes that help you to stay grounded is important. Putting on the readiness given by the gospel of peace would then have to mean not that we're going out on the offensive and preaching the gospel per se, which we should. But in context, being ready with the gospel of peace is more akin to a reminder to us about the nature of the gospel. Paul made a big deal about the nature of the gospel in Ephesians chapter two, right? It's only by salvation in Christ that we have peace with God. We no longer have to worry if we'll be acceptable to God. We no longer have to fear condemnation or eternal punishment. We don't have to worry in one sense, if, even if we're disciplined by God, because the Lord loves those whom he disciplines. The gospel of peace is a reminder that we already possess peace with God through faith in Christ. And that peace can never be taken away. Again, Satan would love to convince the people of God that they can lose favor with him, that it's no use trying to obey because they'll never please him, that no one on earth could ever love us and neither can the Lord because of our sin. But the gospel is clear. The gospel, the true gospel, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ means that we now and forever have peace with God the Father. Verse 16, again, we are to stand firm in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Again, in antiquity, the shield was a significant part of any soldier's army. One author said this, that it was described, the shield was described as having a convex surface measuring three quarters by one quarter meters and a hand's breadth and thickness. It was made up of two wood planks glued together with the outer surface covered first with canvas and then with calfskin. There was a metal, there was metal on the top and bottom edges to protect the wood when it hit the ground. And on the center front, there was an iron boss causing most stones and heavy arrows to glance off. The shield not only covered the body, but also the other parts of the armor described earlier, end quote. 
Paul says in all circumstances, otherwise translated above all or in addition to all these. This piece is important. It's significant, he says. Don't leave home without this. Often enemies would cover their arrows with flammable substances, light them and shoot them at the other side. It is said that the skins or hides covering the shields were capable of extinguishing those flames. Not only that, but they would also soak their shields in water to assist with extinguishing any potential flames. But of course, a soldier without a shield would have no such protection. Satan also fires those arrows, flaming arrows, little darts to set our worlds on fire. He uses deceitfulness, again, his schemes to try to distract and discourage. He uses flaming arrows in order to take our focus off the Lord and doubt his commands to us. Well, what do we use to combat those little arrows? Well, we use the shield of faith. The faith that we have in God, our confidence that he can do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. Our confidence that he desires to be glorified in the church, therefore, will withhold no good thing from us. Our confidence that he has, in fact, chosen us according to his promise, his word. He has saved us. He does keep us in Christ and he will fully redeem us in the end. If God is for us, who can be against us? We must believe that we must believe his word and keep on believing, keep on trusting him. We're called believers, not because at some point in the past we believed, but because we keep believing. We keep trusting. We keep trusting the word of God. Scripture says that the righteous live by faith. Verse 17. And we take up the helmet of salvation. In the original, there's a natural break in this verse. Verse 11, again, put on the whole armor of God. Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God. And here, verse 17, take up the helmet of salvation. It's almost as if Paul is giving us a quick recap of what he's just said. The truth, righteousness, the peace, the faith, these are all elements of salvation. These must all be taken up and are all necessary to guard one of the most significant parts of our bodies, and that is our heads. Of course, the helmet protects the head. The head is one of the most important parts of the body as it commands the rest of the body. The head is essential to protect as a soldier in battle. You may suffer a myriad of wounds and may potentially survive, but a serious head wound is often fatal and can, at worst, also be crippling. You must protect your head. You must protect the way you think, the things you consider. In fact, I think it can be argued that how we think is one of the most important aspects of our faith. Faithful Christianity is not about faith without reason. It is reasonable to be a Christian, and being a Christian requires a well-reasoned faith. Again, all of what he said requires we consider the faith, consider various aspects of the faith. As the evil one is using various schemes and methods, perhaps people in our lives, circumstances that befall us in the sovereignty of God, the evil one uses those things in order to ensnare us. He slanders God and hopes to trap us and draw us away from fidelity to Christ. We need to be able to think rightly about our salvation in order to stand firm. Romans chapter 6, 11, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed with us. Again, if God is for us, who can be against us? So we're thinking about sin on the one hand in Romans 6. Sin is not greater than us. Sin does not have power over us. We're dead to sin. So we're thinking about the sufferings that we encounter in this life. Paul says the sufferings that we encounter are nothing compared to the glory that's coming. Again, the Christian life is a life of hope. We're looking forward to all of what God has for us. 
Paul says in Philippians 3, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. I'm looking forward to that day. And then he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. We all ought to have that as our focus, looking forward to the day when our citizenship will be realized in heaven. Philippians 4, 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The way we think is significant as believers. Consider Jesus, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Hebrews chapter 10, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, we have many different things. There are many different things that we can be discouraged over. And the writer of Hebrews says that we have to consider how to encourage one another as we gather together. That's one of the reasons why we gather together. Well, again, your calling, your salvation, Jesus himself, one another. These are things that should be top of mind for the believer. In Hebrews chapter six, the writer of Hebrews says that the promises of God in our salvation are an anchor to our soul. I think that's a beautiful imagery. It's an anchor for the soul. You think about a ship being tossed to and fro in the waves and what helps to steady it when they get close to uh, close to land and they're, they're wanting to um, s- slow the ship down and help the ship to be stable so that people can get off or get on. What do they do? They drop an anchor. The anchor provides stability. Well, what's the anchor for our souls? It's our salvation. It's the promises of God. To walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ, worthy of our salvation. We need to be thinking about these things daily. Well, verse 17, he says, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's often noted that the sword of the spirit is the only offensive weapon in the whole bunch. And it's not really our weapon. It's the sword of the spirit. It's the word of God, right? In order for us to be able to do what we are commanded to do to stand firm in this passage, we must constantly abide in the truth. Thus we come full circle back to that first piece of armor, the belt of truth. Remember the belt of truth, the belt of truth is what holds everything together. One author said that the sword of the spirit is sheathed in the belt of truth. So this idea of truth in the word of God are kind of bookends to the passage. I don't understand people who profess faith in Christ, but don't come to service to hear the preaching of God's word. I don't understand people who profess faith in Christ, but never lift their Bibles throughout the week. Or people who only look for churches that address their specific felt needs as opposed to preaching the whole counsel of God's word. The word of God is absolutely essential to the life of the church. We're born again as a result of the preaching of the word of God. First Peter chapter one, verse 23. We grow and are nourished on the word of God. First Peter chapter two, verse one. We find guidance for life and service through the word of God. Second Timothy three sixteen. We're given hope and comfort about tomorrow that only the Lord knows through his word. Second Peter chapter three, verse 10. In light of the spiritual battle that we are part of, Paul says in second Corinthians 10 that we are to take every thought captive to obedience to Christ. We must know the word of God so thoroughly that just as Jesus responded to Satan's temptations with the word of God, so we too might wield the weapon of the word of God to defend against his schemes. I wonder, do you know the word of God that well? Are you so equipped with the word, with his truth, that you feel confident to fend off discouragement, temptation, and sin by wielding it? 
Do you read the word of God and meditate on it daily? Do you hide it in your hearts? Do you prioritize gathering the gathering of God's people around the word of God to have your souls collectively encouraged in the truth? Remember when we read through Ephesians chapter four, spiritual maturity comes in community as we gather together and serve one another around the word of God. Do you long for the good that comes from his word? I love this quote from Samuel Rutherford. He says, I urge upon you a nearer and growing communion with Christ. There are curtains to be drawn back in Christ that we have never seen. There are new foldings of love in him. Dig deep, sweat and labor and take pains for him and set by him as much time in the day for him as you can. And he will be one with labor. Do you take pains to get to know God's word, his truth, to be as close to his word, his truth as you can. Well, we, the church of Jesus Christ, are part of a spiritual battle, whether we want to be or not. In the spiritual battle, this warfare is being waged by those in the heavenly places by Satan and his minions. Their goal is to distract, discredit, to discourage, to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. In the church, it is the desire of God who is Lord over all to show forth his wisdom, his power, his creativity, his will, his glory in the church. This battle is largely fought not with flesh and blood, but in the realm of the unseen. And their tactics are many. They may use other people who are part of their domain, as we discussed earlier, to encourage the church to bend to the demands of society, to, to the will of the passions around us. They may use the circumstances of life, things common to each of us, accidents, sickness, death. They may even use the, our own sinful, in, sinful inclinations or that of other members of the church to discourage us or to create disunity. Regardless of what tactics they use, the goal is still the same. The cosmic powers, the spiritual forces of evil want to destroy the church of Jesus Christ because they want to discredit God and his glory. In order for us to be able to stand against the schemes of Satan, we're not here called to rebuke him. Again, we're not here called to cast him out. We're not called to look for him and call him out anytime something difficult happens in our lives. Moreover, we're not called to right every wrong in society or argue with every individual who speaks out against the true and living God and his church. What we are called to do as a church is to be careful to equip ourselves with the very armor of God, for it is only this armor that strengthens us with the power of God to stand firm against those schemes. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, which makes peace, faith, the whole scope of our salvation. We're to clothe ourselves with these things along with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, you'll notice if you were paying attention that I neglected verse 18 in this section. And verse 18 reminds us that we're to bathe everything that we do in prayer. We are to be equipped with and to wage war on our knees in constant prayer to our God. I didn't want to do that verse of the service, so we'll pick up there next week. And look forward to that. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, which is truth. Your word, which again does sanctify us. Thank you for the reminders in your word that we are in a spiritual battle, that there is spiritual warfare waging around us and that we are a part of this fight, whether we like it or not. But that you've given us the tools, the resources that we need in order to wage war. You've given us your armor. Your armor allows us to be strengthened with your power, with your might. And you call us to walk in that armor so that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the evil one. I pray that you would make that true of us here at the Catonsville Baptist Church. 
not just for our good, but ultimately for your glory. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.